or earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. So here we find these questions are being asked within these first four verses concerning um, the statement that's being made about giving the earnest heed to that which we have heard. And then the writer asks the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So there is much to unpack in these first four verses of this second chapter. And I want to remind you as we begin the study this evening again of the theme of the epistle of Hebrews, because all of this obviously is significant in light of any of the passages that we're studying, and that is that Christ is better. If you recall with me, I gave to you last week and the week prior, I believe as well, somewhat of a summarization of many of the instances or examples in the book of Hebrews in which it is stated that Christ is better. He is better than the angels, the highest of created beings, of course. He is better a better high priest representing man to God. He's a better prophet representing God to man. He is a better atonement offered by God on our behalf. He is a better mediator of a better covenant made between God the Father and God the Son. He's the mediator of that covenant, but he's also the one with whom the covenant has been made. And then also, he provides a better hope through his better ministry, which is built upon better promises, as the scriptures teach us. So, so the book of Hebrews teaches us this and so much more about Christ being better. Last week, we examined the last two verses of chapter one. I do want to look at that quickly again, not, not very, uh, very much so at all, but just briefly. And we saw in chapter one, verses 13 and 14, we read, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? The final two verses of chapter one are important in making distinction. If you recall, I explained this somewhat last week of making a distinction of the superiority of Christ between that of the angels, of course. And while none of the angels have a place beside the Heavenly Father, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's eternal Son, is now at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we discover in verse 14, he says, Are they, speaking of the angels, are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? And so he says, first of all, that they are ministering spirits, and that, again, the the word ministering means that they are engaged in a special service. And then two, he said, sent forth to minister, and that is to serve or service. And then third, to them who shall be heirs of salvation. And heirs is to, to be about to or going to, and salvation is deliverance. And so the overall point in this verse is to support the previous emphasis that Jesus Christ is better than the angels. And while the angels are said to be ministering spirits and are said to serve in a special capacity, obviously, engaging in a special service to those who shall be heirs of salvation or those who are going to be delivered. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, as we mentioned, who not only provides such salvation, but it is Christ who is this salvation. So again, the distinction that is being made by the writer is that Jesus Christ is better than the angels. And remember, he references the Psalms all through chapter one, multiple times, and the prophets as well. Much of chapter one is a quote from the Psalms and prophets. And when he writes these things concerning or quotes and references the Psalms and the prophets, he is showing them, the Jews who are reading this letter, 
that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things to which they were looking for, their fathers were looking forward to and hoping for, having confidence in. And so Christ is the fulfillment of all of this. And so this is an emphasis throughout this passage, specifically in the first chapter. So then we come to chapter 2, verse 1. So let's read just this verse alone. Therefore, now based on all of this, in verses 13 and 14, again, summarize what's already been stated about Christ being better than the angels, this distinction that's being made. But then he says, therefore, because of this, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Matthew Henry stated, and this is quite a lengthy quote, but I want to read this to you because I believe it's important in light of what we are looking at this evening. The apostle proceeds in the plain profitable method of doctrine, reason, and use through this epistle. We here we have the application of the truths before asserted and, per, and proved. This is brought in by the illative participle. That simply means it, it state, it's a participle which states an inference or infers something. The illative participle does. Therefore, with which this chapter begins and which shows its connection with the former, where the apostle, having proved Christ to be superior to the angels by whose ministry the law was given, and therefore that the gospel dispensation must be more excellent than the legal. He now comes to apply this doctrine both by way of exhortation and argument. So let me summarize what Henry just said. And it's interesting because as I was studying through this, I had really already uh, making statements in my, in my own personal notes that really aligned to what Henry said, just not in the same elaborate fashion. But yet he's stating that the writer of Hebrews is is plain profitable method of doctrine in his means of writing, reason and use through this epistle. So he's saying that he is presenting these truths and then he's going to show how they are proven, which he's done in the previous chapters, and now showing the appropriate use of these truths and how we are to acknowledge them and recognize them as we receive the truth of what's been stated. And he's going to argue that. That's what he's saying. And so it's interesting that he, he worded this in such a manner. The writer having established the foundational truth that Jesus Christ is better, which we clearly see, than the angels, emphasizes the importance to give heed to these truths, all of these truths of who Christ is, that Christ is better. But also consider this, throughout his reference to the Psalms and the prophets, these are biblical truths that were stated centuries prior. And now he is saying that we are to give heed to these truths, but we are to acknowledge these truths in light of the fact that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these truths. It is Christ that is being pointed, that that these truths are pointing us to. So he says that we are to give heed. Therefore, he says, and this simply means for this reason or for this cause. Again, it's showing us the connection between the previous statements and what is now being stated at this point in time. He says, therefore, we ought. Ought simply means it is necessary. Give pay attention, more earnest, abundantly, or much more, heed, take care, pay attention to, should let, this verb phrase is in the active voice. Now, this is important, and I want you to notice this, because the way you read it, it still shows it's in the active voice, but it almost hints, if you will, if you're not careful, you you may almost look at it as though it is somewhat passive when it's not. It is active voice. And so, it being in the active voice indicates that it is an action of the subject of the verb, which in this case is the verb we. Notice back with me again, 
when you look at chapter 2-1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So we is the subject of the statement that's being made or subject of the verb uh, let slip, if you will, or let. And so we see that this is an active voice. And we'll get to that in a moment. I'm, I'm giving you the definitions here and some of the grammar because I want to tie it together so you understand exactly what's being stated here and understand, don't misunderstand or, or misrepresent the truth that is stated. Then he says slip. Slip literally means to drift away. And so letting them slip is not simply an exhortation to try to remember this, these truths, but rather is a charge for the reader to not drift away from such truths. And that's where I think if we're not careful, we may misunderstand what's being said because it's almost like it would almost read as though, and it's not saying this, but you could misunderstand it to say this, even though it would be your misunderstanding, but it would almost potentially look as though it's saying that we need to really pay attention here so we don't let these things just pass us by. That's not what it's saying, though. When it says, let them slip, it's talking about drift away, but what's actually being stated, when you put all of this together with the definition and the, and the grammar that is used, the definitions of the words and the grammar He's literally saying this, for this reason, or for this cause, it is necessary to pay attention, or more attention, not just pay attention, but to give more attention, potentially, than you're giving now, to give more attention that the reader not drift away from these truths. So it's not just saying, oh, don't let this slip out of your hands. You could almost read it that way, right? Like it's saying, oh, don't let these things slip your mind. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you give more attention to these truths lest you drift away from them. Not lest they escape you, but unless you drift away from them. And so, again, the emphasis is put on us or on the reader to give more attention. It is necessary that you pay attention and you give heed. So the writer continued to make the distinction between the angels of the messengers and the message they proclaimed with that of God having now spoken through his Son. Let's look at verse 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Let's just stop there. The Lord had used his messengers to declare his message, whether they were his prophets, representing God to man by declaring, thus saith the Lord, or his angels, which the word angel, what does it literally mean? Messenger. So whether it be as angels or messengers appearing at different times to different people, for an example, you have Abraham, of course, Jacob, Mary, Joseph, and such, to whom angels literally appeared. Heavenly angels, heavenly messengers appeared to them and gave them the message God had for them. So let's look at a couple of definitions in this verse as well. Steadfast, it literally means enforced, valid, or firm. And then just recompense of reward is simply righteous punishment, or you could say righteous judgment. Whatever the message was, when it was God who sent the message, it was always steadfast or always proven to be true and valid. Let's read verse 2 again. For if the word spoken by angels, by messengers, was steadfast, was valid and true, every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, of righteous judgment. The overarching message sent by God's messengers or angels refers to his law. Think about this for a moment. Not just the Mosaic law, that as well. But when you think of the law of God, when God sent messengers to declare something to the people, in many cases, this is God's righteousness being revealed and God's law, if you will, and such being established or being declared. The prophets as well, the prophets warned against sin, told the people of their sin, 
warned them of God's judgment, did they not? And they, they foretold these things that would be uh, based upon the truth of what God had, had revealed to them. And so in referring to the law, we find this to be stated even in the scriptures. In Acts 7.53, before, having, before he was stoned for the gospel's sake as a martyr, Stephen declared this in Acts 7.53, and we'll look at more of this in just a moment. But he said, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. So he's saying they received the law by the disposition of angels that the forefathers, many of them who've gone before, not those of the faith, of course, but those who were not of the faith, of the people of Israel. And he's saying, speaking to these Jews who now are angered at him, and they stone him because of this, but he says, you received the message of God. You received the law of God by the messengers of God, by the angels of God, and yet you have not kept it. You have sinned against God. You have not held it near. So God's message, obviously, as the writer says in in Hebrews, was not to be dismissed, disregarded, or disobeyed. For all those who did sin against God's message, the transgression he mentions, either by acting against the word of the Lord or by not acting according to God's word, received a just recompense of reward, which is to say righteous punishment. Stephen proclaimed to those who stoned him. Let's go back there again, Acts 7, 51 through 53 now. He stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. This is Stephen speaking to these Jews. He says, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? He's saying, tell me one prophet that the, that the, the people of Israel didn't persecute, that they didn't rel against, that they didn't hate. He goes, and they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been, or been now the betrayers and murderers. So Stephen is not mincing words here at all, is he? He's saying, look, you are stiff-necked, hard-hearted. You have rejected God's word as it came to you by the law given to you by the angels, the messengers of God. He says, and the prophets, where is a prophet that you did not persecute? Is there one? No, you can't name one. And then not only did you hate them and persecute them, but you slew them who foretold of the just one, who Christ, that Christ would come, of whom now you have betrayed and murdered. Then he says in verse 53, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Just verses later, you know what they do? They rise up in anger against Stephen and they stone him out of hatred. If those who were under the law, so this is the argument that the Hebrew writer is making. If those who were under the law were held accountable before God, then how much more so will those who've been provided such grace be held accountable before God? This is the argument. Let's read verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at first, at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now, based on such an explanation, and we're going to see where he is talking, the Hebrew writer now is talking about Christ having come, been foretold, now appeared, God spoken to us by his son. We're going to look at that again in a moment. These references are not merely talking back to Old Testament saying God foretold that he would send his son and they didn't hear him. Now the writer is speaking to those who had heard the eyewitness testimony of Christ, who had heard that he had come and and heard word and testimony of those, the witnesses who had heard him, heard Jesus. And so based on such an explanation of how God would execute his righteous judgment on those who disregarded or disobeyed his law or his word, the writer of Hebrews now poses a solemn question 
in which he emphasizes a profound reminder and warning. First of all, look at the beginning of this passage of verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, the word neglect means to be unconcerned. And the word salvation, again, is deliverance, just as it was in the previous chapter. The writer continues to make it this distinction, as I shared already, between God having now spoken to us <clears throat> by his Son, from God having spoken through the many inferior ways prior to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Christ is superior, then everything else is inferior. So every other way that God ever spoke is inferior to how he has spoken now through his Son, because Christ is better. And so again, this is this, this emphasis that's being made. If men who refuse to heed God speaking through his prophets and messengers and his law did not escape God's judgment, then how much more so will those who neglect his son be righteously judged by the Lord? Now let's, let's look at something here that I think is important to take note of. Notice that the passage does not say those who reject so great salvation. But it says those who neglect so great salvation. Jesus spoke a parable in Matthew's gospel which speaks to this matter and helps, I think, provide us a little clarity. In Matthew 22, 2-5, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which, had, which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth the other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it. And went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. This salvation must not be neglected or treated or viewed with, as though it is of no concern. We are to give attention, as the writer exhorts, to this great salvation, lest we drift from living in the truth of such grace. He is saying, you've been, you, you, you've been delivered, do not neglect this great deliverance. Do not look lightly upon this great deliverance. The Hebrews uh, writer further expounded upon this truth in latter chapters of this epistle. In Hebrews 10, 28 and 29 we read, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. This, in many ways, is, is re-emphasizing or reiterating what the writer has already said here in chapter 2 that we read just a moment ago. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, here in Hebrews 10, and we don't have time to get into all of this yet, but the writer says, if he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses, how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under foot the Son of God? and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. So he's saying that those who would look light on such a deliverance, those who would not take seriously such a deliverance, those who would not commit themselves to the truth of this great deliverance, he's saying that, that they neglect this, that they're unconcerned with it, they don't give proper attention to it. He says, then they drift away. Now, drifting away, and even statements that are made here tonight. I don't think that you can come to the conclusion that he speaks here uh, specifically of eternal damnation or judgment. But the point is, 
that, there, that the blood of Christ and the sacrifice that was made is not something to which we ever should grow numb to or we should view as being something that is casual, as something that is nothing more than an addition to our lives, if you will. As many people view so-called salvation, or even some may view salvation uh, due to their not, lack of understanding or not being committed to the truth that has been revealed concerning this great deliverance. In Hebrews 12, 24 and 25, we read, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Now again, the writer of Hebrews is writing to primarily to Jews, to Hebrews, right? That's who he's writing to. And we understand that he is pointing out the truth that Christ is better. He's the fulfillment of all these things. But there's language throughout Hebrews that is used that I think we need to be careful and, and cautious in approaching and approaching in our understanding of it, that we maintain a proper context of what is being stated. And again, when he says neglect, he does not say reject here. The, all, in other words, let me say it to you like this. All those who reject the grace of God and salvation, reject Christ, what's going to happen? They will perish without question, right? But those who have been redeemed are to give attention to this great deliverance. If for no other reason, think of it like this, because he's worthy of that, obviously, but also that we live in the joy of this salvation and of this deliverance and in worship unto God, recognizing his worth, rather than viewing such a work of redemption carelessly or without reverence. Let me, let me give you, allude to, uh, point you to a passage that I think will help you maybe uh, better understand this. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe it is, and you know where Paul is dealing with the Corinthian church concerning there was division and schism in the body, and they are not caring for one another, but rather they are, um, he's talking about communion on the table, and he's referencing how that they are, they're not discerning the Lord's body and how that they drink, uh, eat and drink uh, condemnation, upon themselves remember when he speaks of these types of things well that's not saying if someone's a believer in christ and they are not discerning the lord's body that now they're going to perish because they don't discern the lord's body no but god will judge that god's saying the this purpose of the lord's table again is for unity and purity of the body of christ and if you partake while exalting yourself higher than you should and looking down on your fellow believer brother or sister in christ as though you deserve something that they don't deserve, as though you deserve grace and mercy and they don't, or you deserve more than they do, God's saying if you don't care for them, recognizing that Christ died for the entirety of his body and that every believer is part of that body, therefore we are all undeserving of such grace and mercy, he says, then there is going to be judgment. There's going to be judgment. And so when we look at these verses, I think it's good to keep in light or in mind these truths and understanding, because to reject God's salvation, which every man has done and is doing who's not a believer in Christ, is ultimately to perish, and we know that. So he's not saying the believer will perish here. He never brings that up here, but he's saying that there will be judgment for those who carelessly view such great deliverance. That God is not going to just let this go. And, and I believe that's a, a, a very staunch warning for all believers. And the Jews were prone to do this because what were the Jews always, Jews always prone to go back to? The law or Judaism, right? And what? Christ is better than the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. 
He is the truth of what Judaism was all about in its pure form. And so Christ is better than this. And so the writer's reminding the people of this. These verses we have read refer to the opening verses of the epistle. Go back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 once again. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So God has spoken unto us by Christ his Son. And that's what he's speaking of here in these verses, opening verses of chapter 2, when he's referencing we ought to give the more earnest heed to that which we have heard, lest we let them slip, lest we drift from them. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression disobedience received a just recompense or righteous judgment, how shall we escape if we neglect, if we are unconcerned with so great deliverance, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed in us by them that heard him? Talking now of Christ. The writer continues, as we just read, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed in us by them that heard him. The Lord had confirmed this salvation by his own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as John testified in his epistle in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. And many of you are familiar, familiar with this passage, you should be, as we recently taught through this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. John is saying we've seen, we've heard, we've handled, we have touched the very word of life, the eternal Son of God. God has manifested himself to us through his Son and we now bear witness and are witnesses and testify of the truth of he who is the Son of God and what he has said. And here the writer is saying, look again, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? What is John doing? In First John that we just read, what is John doing? He's confirming that which he heard of Christ. He is doing exactly what the Hebrew writer is referencing. Then look at verse 4. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. Here he's saying, again, this is New Testament here. Understand, he's not talking about Old Testament now because the Holy Spirit had not been given in the Old Testament. But what did God do? He gave signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, according to his own will. The Lord validated the witnesses of the gospel of Jesus with signed gifts. And notice in Scripture, and there is a distinction that is made in Scripture. It's not just a distinction that I am attempting to make. But there are signed gifts and there are spiritual gifts. And sometimes they kind of intermingle some in the text. But again, in the context of the, of the time in which it was written, it would make perfect sense that that would be the case. So he says that he bore them witness... Those who heard Christ, by the way, this is another reason to, I think, for someone to lean heavily toward cessationism, because it says here clearly that God gave them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. But who are the, those he gave witness? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, he says, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So those that heard him were given sign gifts and 
power and ability to do miracles, miraculous works, as did the Lord Jesus Christ, and had gifts of the Holy Ghost, which we have gifts of the Holy Ghost, well, spiritual gifts, according to his own will, he said. So the Lord validated the witnesses of the gospel of Jesus, those who heard Christ with the sign gifts, the power to perform miracles, as did the Lord, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit as he willed to do. The long ending of, of Mark's gospel record, record testifies of this as well. In Mark 16, 20, it says, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Even in this, in, in, in Mark's uh, long ending of the gospel here in Mark 16, 20, it says that the word was confirmed with signs following. The emphasis is here not on the signs or the works that were done, the emphasis is on what? The word and the witness, the word the witnesses declared, which was then confirmed by the signs. Because the same works that Jesus did, now these disciples and apostles are doing, and followers of Christ are doing, which was then irrefutably provided as evidence to those who would not believe that this is not just a group of people in some clique or cult that are making claims without any power behind it. No, they are doing the same works that Jesus had done, declaring not themselves, but declaring who? Christ. And so it would confirm the word with the signs following. Paul also explained how the Lord gifted his followers with different, different gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 12. And so the writer here in Hebrews is making this continued distinction between the angels, the other messengers, the prophets, and so on and so forth, and how God communicated with man, the distinction between that, the inferior manner and ways in which God communicated with man, to the superior way in which God has communicated with man, which is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is better. So give heed, pay attention with proper concern to this great salvation or deliverance provided for us in Jesus Christ, do not drift away from a lack of the proper attention to this salvation. This is a, a strong exhortation and a strong warning. But what is the tendency? The tendency is for us as fallen men to not properly view this great deliverance. Do not properly give the attention it deserves. Let me say it to you like this, and I'm saying this in a sense of necessity or, under, or felt or understood. When I say felt, I'm talking emotions. I'm talking physically feeling hunger. So the felt understood need that is present physically speaking to, to kind of just emphasize the importance of this truth i'm going to make a statement and this isn't about something you're able to do it's about you recognizing something so i want to conclude with this question i think it's a good question for all of us to consider in light of this exhortation and warning provided by the Hebrew writer. How well 
would you physically survive if you cared for your physical existence and needs in the same manner you did your spiritual? I believe that's a fitting question. So I think even in light of that question, it causes us to pause and consider the fact that we probably are much more prone to neglect this great deliverance, this great salvation, more so than we are prone to neglect our physical well-being. And that helps us to understand a little bit of the writer's emphasizing here in light of not giving the proper attention to this salvation. I guess I would say this, another way to say it, and this is not to convince you to go home and make a change in doing something. That's not even the point here. The question is to, to help, the, the questions I'm asking are intended to cause us to pause and consider the truth of what the writer is stating, saying, wait a minute, maybe we do not give proper attention. I would venture to say that in most cases, for most even professing believers, that they would be terribly physically weak and sickly if their physical consumption was no more than their spiritual consumption is on a daily basis. Again, I'm not saying that so you go home and stay up all night reading your Bible. That's not the point here at all. The question is, where is our concern or what are we, where are we attentive? To what do we give our attention? And that's what the writer is saying. Look, pay more attention and give the proper attention to these things we have heard, lest we drift away. Because our tendency is to do what? Drift away. That is our tendency. So this is the exhortation and the warning that's provided. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for...